The reading for, for this afternoon is from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 to 24. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 to 24. It's on page 1244, 1244 of the Pew Bibles. The reason we're reading this is because, as we sang, we are conceived and born in sin, and the biblical answer to that is regeneration, as we'll read in Lord's Day 3. And we find something, the same thing here, which is renewed, being renewed by the Spirit, in the spirit of your minds, as on verse 23. So read, we'll read verse, verses 17 to 24. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. The confessional Reference this afternoon is from Lord's Day 3. Lord's Day 3. It's on page 203 of your forms and prayers, if you have that. Lord's Day 3, I, I guess I should mention the context. Lord's Day 2 ended with, I am inclined by nature to hate God and my neighbor. And that's where Lord's Day 3 picks it up. And I'll read the question and you respond with the answer. Question 6, did God create man so wicked and perverse? And where does man's corrupt nature come from? Next page, question eight. But are we so corrupt that we are totally unable to do any good and inclined toward all evil?
dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, imagine that you went to the doctor because you're not feeling well. So you'll go there, and you'll tell the doctor about your symptoms. He'll ask you about the symptoms. He'll run some tests to see what is wrong with you. And he'll ask one more thing from you. And that will be your family health history. He might ask you, for example, did your parents have any illness? Did he, your father perhaps have cancer? Or did your grandfather have cancer? And so on. Why does he do that? That's because your family health history will help you figure out exactly what is wrong with you. That's because we inherit genes from our parents. And that's, or something like that, is what we have in Lord's Day 3. In this section of the catechism, the part one, misery, sin and misery, we're trying to understand our own sin and misery. In Lord's Day 3, the catechism zooms out and gives us a bird's eye view of what happened to mankind as a whole. You might say it gives us a family spiritual health history. Now, it's important to know this because you want to know exactly what is wrong with you so that you can find the right cure, the correct cure, receive the proper treatment. So this afternoon, we'll focus on our family spiritual health history. So the theme of the sermon is the bird's eye view of every Christian, or I think it's something different, the, the bird's eye view of mankind's history. And we'll consider three points. First, the fallen state. Second, the original state. And third, the renewed state. What is our current situation? What is our current status? And as I've read, we ended Lord's Day 2 with a gloomy answer. I am inclined by nature to hate God and my neighbor. That's how we are by nature, and that's the cause of all misery. That's why people have conflict with each other. That's why people have broken relationships because they hate each other. That's why life is so difficult, and there's so much brokenness in this world because we hate God by nature, and God curses disobedience. It comes from this corrupt nature. And the catechism then asks, how did we get here? How, why are we so inclined to hate everyone? And we find the answer in question seven. Answer seven. It's because Adam and Eve fell, and since then everyone is conceived and born in sin. And God, God's word tells us, tells us how this works. Turn to Genesis 5, verse 3. Genesis 5, verse 3, it's on page 5. There we read, When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. Adam fathered a son in his own likeness. Which makes you wonder, if Adam had never felt, 
since he was in the image of God, that image would have, might have been passed down. But since Adam did fall and his nature was corrupt, what's being passed down is that corrupt nature being passed on from one generation to the next all the way down to you. That's why you're inclined by nature to hate God and hate your neighbor. And that's a helpful explanation, isn't it? We know that children are like their fathers, they are like their parents, the way they talk, the way, the way they walk, the way they laugh, their facial expressions, their mannerism can be identical, identical to their parents. And so the children of Adam were like Adam and Eve. So it was the next generation all the way down to you, including David. And that's why David says in Psalm 51, verse 5, In sin did my mother conceive me. And that's why, by nature, you're inclined to hate God and your neighbor. That's the biblical answer. There are other answers, wrong answers in this world. And in just in the case some of you think that somehow children are born as perfect little angels, let me give you a specific example, an everyday example of how we are born broken. We know that some people are genetically predisposed to be vulnerable to alcohol, to become alcoholics. There are largely two groups. First, compared to the average person, there are people who get a, a higher, larger, bigger kick of dopamine, the pleasure hormone, chemical, when they drink alcohol. And they are born with a tendency to love alcohol more than others. Second, we know that socially anxious people are more drawn to alcohol because alcohol is an, it inhibits anxiety. It makes them more social. So when they drink alcohol and they're under the influence of alcohol, they like how social they are. So they're more prone to become dependent on alcohol as well. So these two groups of people, the reason they're drawn to alcohol is not because, I mean, it could be because of the way they were brought up, but there's also a factor that they were born that way. They were, that's their biological makeup. That's just two proofs of how people are born broken. You can think of others as well. We, I've heard that the most violent age for human beings is actually two years old. They have to be socialized in order to be civil. And you can also just think of people who are born with genetic defects. People are not born perfect, neither physically nor spiritually. And that experience confirms and corresponds with the truth of the Bible that everyone is conceived and born in sin. This is basic stuff. Adam and Eve fell, and then that corruption spread. Everyone is conceived and born in sin. And you might wonder, why does this matter? This might be like children's Bible stuff. But if you think about how the world thinks, I think you'll be immensely thankful for this revelation, this knowledge. The world does not know that this is the cause of sin and misery. The world scoffs and mocks Genesis 3, that it's a mythical story, that snakes talk and so on. And they have their own theories of why there is evil, why people are suffering, and so on. For example, Marx, Karl Marx mocked Christianity and all religion, saying religion 
is the opium of the masses. The story that you just tell people to control them is what he said. And his own sophisticated theory of evil was that the reason people are suffering so much is because of oppression. They didn't think that it was, it was because everyone was born and conceived and born in sin, hating each other and hating God. They thought it was the rich and privileged people who are oppressing the poor. That's why there's so much misery and suffering. So if only we can get rid of them, things will be better. They would establish a utopia. So their solution was a revolution to kill off that privileged, rich, oppressive class. And when they mocked, as they mocked Genesis 3, what they ended up doing was killing 60 million people. 60 million people. And then the result of that was 100 million people dying. If they only knew that people were conceived and born in sin, and that was the cause of our misery, perhaps something like that could have been prevented. And that's an example of a wrong diagnosis leading to a wrong treatment, a deadly treatment. This is relevant because, sadly, Marxist and neo-Marxist ideologies still exist in our culture. It's still, they still say the, the rich are oppressing us. Now it's not just the rich, it's the race. Now it's gender and different. They just cut it differently, categorize oppression and the oppressed differently, but it still exists in our culture. And you know how harmful that is. To us. And let me give you another example. There's another theory that tries to explain why there is so much misery and suffering and unhappiness in this life. And this one is targeting specifically your daughters. Abigail Schreier wrote a book titled Irreversible, Irreversible Damage, The Transgender Craze Seducing Our Daughters. Abigail Schreier, the author, she's not a Christian, She's a journalist, but she noticed that there was a trend of, quote, high anxiety, depressive, mostly white girls, unquote, coming out as trends. And she says, the reason why they identified themselves as trends was because they came to the conclusion that the reason why they were so unhappy was because they were born in the wrong body. They're actually male, but they are born into a girl's body. So they wanted to alter, change their bodies, their female bodies into male bodies, as if that's possible. So they went ahead and started receiving puberty blockers, getting testosterone shots, and getting a top surgery, which is cutting off their breasts. And what made Abigail Schreier write this book is that she noticed that that wasn't the solution. People transitioned, those who transitioned, were not happier afterwards. They were often worse off. And then they're stuck. They cannot go back there in, in this limbo of male and female, which increases their unhappiness. Again, wrong diagnosis leading to a wrong treatment. The decision to transition was made when they are so young. Young children are influenced by trans coaches, teenagers, and the result of the decision was that most of them will become infertile. There's an increased risk of cardiac arrest, arrest heart failure, 
heart attacks and so on. And then they have to live with a permanent physical change. And if only they knew that the cause of misery, the cause of unhappiness and anxiety, the reason they were not feeling comfortable in their bodies was because they were conceived and born in sin. They were, there's something broken about this world. If only they had known that, maybe they would not have made such a devastating choice. These are urgent issues. These are ideologies that are prevalent in our culture, and it's coming into our schools, it's coming into our churches, it's coming into our homes, readily accessible on your phones. There is so much suffering and misery and unhappiness in this world, and people are searching for answers, and there are lots of wrong answers out there with a ton of false promises. So aren't you thankful that you know exactly why the world is such a mess? Why is life so painful? God's word alone tells you exactly why that is. It gives you a convincing argument, a convincing case. God's word tells us that something has indeed gone terribly wrong. This is not how life was meant to be. And that causes suffering. And if you were to ask, well, how was life supposed to be? Then we can go to the second point, the original state. In Ephesians 4, if you don't mind turning with me to Ephesians 4, we get some hints of how things were in the original state. Ephesians 4. 1244. Consider words in verse 18, starting from 18, words such as darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God. In verse 19, they have become callous. Like these expressions tell us that these are not how things were created. It does not say that they were dark in their understanding. It says they were darkened in their understanding. And they have become callous, which implies that they weren't callous before. And from this, you can see why this world is so, can be, this life can be so painful and why people are so discontent. For example, we read the, the expression darkened in their understanding. And that tells us that mankind, their minds, their understanding wasn't dark, it was light, it was bright. And that tells us why people are so unhappy, even when they, as we read, give themselves up to sensuality. There's something fundamentally different about human beings from animals. If if people are indulging in sex and drugs and whatever they want, eat whatever they want, why aren't they still happy? Why is that so many people feel empty? Why is it so even unbelievers, after spending their youth like that, will become counselors and therapists to help others to stay away from that. And that's because their minds are darkened, but not completely. There's still a bit of light left in them. That's what we read in Romans 2, that even the Gentiles have a sense of what is right and wrong. Even unbelievers hold themselves to a higher standard, and when they do not meet that, they become miserable and unhappy. 
They're, under, they're darkened in their understanding, yet not completely. Furthermore, let me highlight one word in verse 18. Alienated from the life of God. And this I find most helpful. That means, that implies that we weren't alien, we weren't distant before. We were close to God. We were, in fact, created to live with God. And as we confess in answer 6, we were created to know God, that is, to, in a biblical sense, to love God, His Creator, love Him. That's what he says, with all his heart, to live with Him in eternal happiness for His praise and glory. We were meant to live in eternal happiness with God, and then when we fell, we were alienated, alienated from the life of God. That's why life is so difficult. And let me give you an illustration that I find helpful. There's a story called Fish Out of Water by Sally Lloyd-Jones, which makes this point effectively. She writes, Have you seen a fish swimming? It dives, darts, glides, turns, flashes through the water. A fish was made for water. That's its natural habitat, the place where it belongs. And the Bible says, we were made for God, to be loved by Him and to love Him. And that's where we belong. But when we run away from God, we run away from everything that makes us alive and free. We run away from our own happiness. We leave our place where we belong close to his heart. That's a powerful imagery, isn't it? Fish without water is a great illustration. If you can imagine a fish flapping around on a hot asphalt, that catches something of the condition of man without God. Think about the fish flapping on hot asphalt in a sunny summer day. Think about the fish, that pain, the pain that it experiences. Left out long enough, that fish will surely die because there will be no way to bring oxygen into their gills. But what's as powerful as that imagery is, what's shocking is that man's misery, man's condition without God is worse than that. And you might say infinitely worse than that because God is infinite. That means without God, man has an infinite need, a God-shaped hole as many would describe it. We have a hole that's infinitely big. You might think of a spiritual black hole that sucks in all the joy and leaves you empty infinitely. That's man's condition without God. And that's why Augustine puts it this way, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Alienated from the life of God. No wonder people are so unhappy. That's the condition we find ourselves in. Yet, is there a way out of this? Is there a way out. Is there a way that we can bring ourselves out from this condition? 
It's hard to tell. Probably not. And for sure not, because we've just read, we, we've, we've been saying in the previous point, that we are conceived and born in sin. Have you ever seen the sign, born this way? It's often seen at LGBTQ rallies and in rainbow, rainbow colors, born this way. What's the force of the argument there? Why do they say that? And part of it is that they're saying, if I'm born this way, there's not much I can do about it. I didn't choose to do this. I was born this way, so don't try to make me change. We intuitively know that it's hard to change something that you are born with. And the Bible tells us that you are born, conceived and born in sin. So how in the world are you going to fix that? That means your corruption runs deep. Your heart is corrupt. Every single cell in your body is corrupt. Your soul is corrupt as well. So to solve a problem like that, something radical, something powerful needs to happen. Something that's going to fix both your soul, your heart, every single cell in your body. Something like that has to happen. And the good news is that God has exactly that perfect solution for you. And that's wonderful news. Well, if you were born that way, in sin, be born again. If you're born broken, be born again, holy. You know, sometimes people say that, well, he's just like that, or I'm stubborn, and this is just how I am. How is that an excuse? When you can be born again, you can be completely new in Christ. That's the solution God has. That's what we see in answer eight of our catechism. Nice. Ken R.C. version has a regeneration, but this form writes, unless we are born again. Yes, unless we are born again by the Spirit of God. Being born again, that's also the concept we find in Ephesians 4, verse 23, with a synonym, be renewed, being renewed in the Spirit of God. Being born again, being renewed, being recreated, these are all the same things, all the same thing in the Bible. This is the solution God gives us for being conceived and born in sin. And now, is this indeed what we need? Well, look at verse 17. Paul tells, commands the Ephesians not to walk as the Gentiles do any longer. And being renewed in the Spirit will enable you to stop walking as the Gentiles, as, as in sin. And look at verse 24. Being renewed in the spirit of your minds would allow you to put on the new self, which is created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. That's just as you were before the fall. That's how we were created. Being, being renewed is the way to go back, to undo the fall. And that also grants us access to God's presence. We are alienated from the life of God, and that's a big problem. But if you're born again, you can enter the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. Like we know that there is a connection 
or rebirth is the way into God's kingdom because that's what Christ told Nicodemus. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So this is indeed the solution that we need. Now, if rebirth and being renewed is what we're looking for, how do you do that to yourself? And that's a difficult question, isn't it? That's exactly what Nicodemus asked Jesus. How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter her mother's womb, his mother's womb again? It's impossible on our part, but as the Catechism points out, it is possible through the Spirit of God. And we see in Ephesians 4 that this is done through Jesus Christ. Look at verse 20. But that is not the way you learned Christ. That's what makes the difference. That's the transition point of the text. If you look what comes before this, verses 17, 18, and 19, that describes the, the futile ways of the Gentiles, all the terrible things that we dealt with a little bit. And then there's verse 20, and then starting from verse 21, 22, it's about putting off your old self, being renewed in the spirit, to put on the new self, being created, recreated after the image of God, wonderful things. So being renewed, being born again happens through learning Christ. So this is an important concept. So what does it mean to learn Christ? Notice that Paul didn't say you learn about Christ, but that you learned Christ. The following phrases in the original makes it meaning clearer. And I think the NKJV captures the subtle differences better. While the ESV in verse 21 has, verse 20 has, but that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him. But the NKJV renders a verse, but that is not how you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard Christ. What Paul is saying in the original is not that the Ephesians heard about Christ, but that they have heard Christ. They have learned Christ and that they have heard Christ. And let me give you an illustration to show you the difference. Some time ago, there was a Ligonier conference in Ontario, and one of the speakers was Tim Challies. Now, have you heard about Tim Challies? Most likely so. He's, he's a pastor, he's a blogger, an author, and so on. And maybe you have heard about him. But since the conference, I can say that I have heard Tim Challies. And that's because I attended the conference. I can say that I heard him. I, I don't have to say that I heard about him. I heard him because I was there. I was in his presence I was there in person. I heard him in person. You see the difference between hearing about someone and hearing someone? So when the Ephesians learned Christ and when they heard Christ, it implies that they have encountered, they have met Christ in person. They've heard Christ in person. Paul is not talking about learning some information about Christ. He's talking about encountering Christ and having a relationship with him. But you might say, how, wait, how does, how does this work? 
how does this work with Ephesians? Were Ephesians eyewitnesses? Were they there when Christ was ministering on this earth? I mean, they, they might have been there, but they weren't converts yet. Paul is the missionary, is the one who's writing this. And Paul was converted after the ascension of Christ, when Christ was no longer on this earth. And then as Paul was become, being a missionary, as working in the mission field in, in Ephesus, these Ephesians became converts. And so it's also after Christ's ascension. My point is that the Ephesians never physically met Christ. If that's the case, how is it that they have learned Christ? How is it that they have heard Christ? What Paul is implying is that when you hear the gospel of Christ, you don't, you just, you don't just hear information about someone, you come into contact with Christ. This might be a bit mysterious, but this is indeed what the Bible teaches us. And this is what you experience as well, not by sight, but by faith. We call this the mystical union, the union with Christ. Let me give you some examples. For, for example, in Ephesians 3, verse 17, Paul bows his knees before God and prays, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Christ dwells in your hearts through faith. Also, Paul says in Colossians 2, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ, united with Christ in his death. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So when you believe in Jesus Christ, proclaimed to you in his word, what happens is that you actually start to have a living relationship with Christ. You get to encounter Christ. You get to meet Christ. That's how you will be completely renewed. And this is a powerful thing. If you think about what happened to Paul on the way on to Damascus, he saw Christ, didn't he? He met Christ. He heard Christ. And that completely transformed. He, it renewed him. He was a blasphemer. He was a persecutor of the church. He met Christ, and then he suffers for Christ. He dies for Christ. He serves Christ. He's renewed. And that's what can happen to you as the gospel is being proclaimed to you. That's what can happen right now as you believe in Jesus Christ present who reveals himself in his word. And that's the solution we need. Jesus Christ is the cure that the Father prescribes to you for your genetic family disease of sin. If you're born, conceived and born in sin, what you need is to, to encounter Christ, to believe in Jesus Christ. And that's what you do at the Lord's Supper. You ingest Jesus Christ as a medicine. You eat his body and drink his blood, and then he transforms you from within. And he will never stop doing so. He will continue to transform you he will make you holy. He will make you blameless. He will eradicate that pollution in you, and he will certainly heal you completely and make you perfect. Amen. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we Thank you that you are our Father. Father, we are born, conceived and born in sin. 
We are born with a, with a serious defect. Yeah, we praise you for not forsaking us, abandoning us, or how ugly we are spiritually. Father, we thank you that you have graciously adopted us as your children, and, and you've done so by renewing us, making us be born again. We confess and we see that this is our only hope. And so we pray that this might happen to us as you have done so many times. This is something that only you can do. We confess that this work of regeneration, recreation is no less powerful than the work of creation that you've done in the beginning of this world. We pray that you would continue to renew us and recreate us after your image through your word and through your son, Jesus Christ. In him alone we pray, amen. As a response to the proclamation 